When you see people sin, what do you do? Do you pray for them, or do you hope they get what's coming to them? Or even more to the point, if they sin against you, what do you do? Do you pray for them? How do you respond to that? Well, Jesus, Jesus taught us to pray for our enemies, and so that's a challenge for us. How can we possibly pray for people who are sinning, especially if it's against us? So I hope today we can learn something from how Moses prays for sinning people in, in uh, Exodus 32, chapter 32. Last week we, we were in Exodus 24, and so uh, what we saw then is after confirming God's covenant with, with Israel, uh, God invited Moses to come up to him on the mountaintop. To, and he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. We saw that at the end of, of the text in chapter 24. What you see in chapters 20, 25 through 31 is uh, Moses receiving from God plans for a, a portable sanctuary called the tabernacle for, for Israel. And uh, it's, it's a very big deal in Exodus. It's actually about one-fifth of Exodus is, is dealing with the tabernacle. We're not going to deal with the tabernacle in our, in our series here because actually a few years ago we, we did a whole series on the tabernacle and we had a, a live tabernacle. We had the real thing imported from Israel, sort of. We had actually furniture and all that, so we, we studied the tabernacle, and, and so we're um, not going to do that again here, but it's very important because it was the way that God revealed to Israel how he was to be approached in worship and how he could dwell among a sinful people. You see this in Exodus 25, 8, and 9, where God said to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So do this exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of his furniture, so you shall make it. So it's very important for the, uh, the, the tabernacle with its furnishings and the priesthood. Israel will learn how God is to be worshipped. Very important. The true worship of God was never to be a matter of people devising ways to reach God on their own or by importing things from the culture around them. They, they were to, to do it exactly as God assigned to them to do it. So after receiving these plans, we see in Exodus 31, verse 18, that he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony. So he had two copies of the law. God gave it to him, written in stone, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And then what we're going to see in Exodus 32 is what goes on after that. So I'm going to read to you Exodus 32, verses 1 to 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, this Moses, the man who brought us up from out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold so that, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made uh, a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and, and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your 
For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to, to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So as we walk through this passage, I'm going to have the, the verses on the screen. I'm not going to read them all again for you, but just so you can see where, where we are, and you can see I'm not making things up out of my own mind, we'll give you a placeholder. So verse 1. What was Moses' delay? Well, he was on the mountain for 40 days. They thought that was too long. So they, they gang up on, on his poor, helpless brother Aaron, and they say, um, who Moses, Moses had put him in charge while he was away, and they say, get up and make gods for us. Get going, make us some gods. The way they refer to Moses indicates that they're thinking not of God. They're just thinking of the man himself, who God used to bring them out of Egypt. And yet, by saying this Moses, this Moses guy, it shows they don't really have a lot of respect for him. They don't really regard him very highly. Hey, this guy, uh, we don't know what's happened to him, so um, we don't know what, you need to make us some gods. They take Moses' seeming long absence to, to mean God is absent. They assume that God must conform to their timetable. If they can't see God working, they, they, they assume that he, they, they need to take matters into their own hands. So they demand that Aaron make gods that they can see, that fits what they are used to in Egypt. They want a user-friendly God who meets them on, in, things, in ways that they're used to. Strange thing is, we also want a God who, who just does things the way we want him to in, 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 in our timing, not his. Uh, since we can't see God, we, we want him to do things that make sense to us. God works the way the world does it. We're used to the way things work in the world, so we want God to fit that way and fit our timetables. And then we see Aaron. So what does Aaron do when they say this? Well, in verses 2 to 4, he calls for a love offering of gold rings from their wives and children. They have these things in their ears that they, they got while they were in Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians gifted them all this gold that they were probably supposed to use for the tabernacle. He says, hey, bring all that stuff to me. And he takes a graving tool and makes a golden calf, probably a bull. Uh, in Egypt, they worshipped a god called Apis, A-P-I-S, who was a bull god, which is bull. <laughs> and said, these are your gods who brought you out of, out of Egypt. It's stunning that they believe their own words because idolatry makes you dumb. 
It doesn't help you think clearly. It, it um, claiming to be wise, it became fools, as it says in Romans chapter 1. So idolatry is never good for your, your brain. It always degrades your thinking. Then in verses 5 and 6, we see Aaron sees how willing they are to, bring, to, to embrace this golden bull as the gods who bring them out of Egypt. So he builds an altar. Aaron has the audacity to make an altar. They're going to sacrifice to this bull to atone for their sin, really? And uh, so he tries to make it more orthodox, more acceptable by saying, hey, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to Yahweh, to, the, to, our, to our Lord. So the next morning, they get up and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, presumably to Yahweh through this golden bull. Yahweh is the name for God, their God. It was not good, clean fun. It was an idolatrous frenzy. As we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 7, in the New Testament, Paul writes this. He says, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So this was they were desiring evil. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and, and drink and rose up to play. So don't do that. I like what, the way R.C. Sproul puts it. He says this, The bull gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. So weeks have passed, just a few weeks have passed since since, um, um, Moses presented them the, the covenant. The blood of the covenant that he had, uh, he had scattered on them and, and on the altar and, and on, the, uh, on the law itself had scarcely dried when they were already breaking it. So he had confirmed it, blood covenant, and they're, they're, they're breaking it. What, what they said back in Exodus 24 was, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be, obe- we will be obedient. So obviously they, they weren't sticking very closely to their, their promise. Their spiritual amnesia had made them, had astonished the psalm writer. In Psalm 106, um, what the psalm writer says in Psalm 106, 19 to 22, they made a calf in Horeb, that's Sinai, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Meanwhile, God was up on the mountain with Moses explaining how he was to be worshipped. We become like how we worship and what we worship. Only God's way to worship uh, can preserve his majesty and make his people be a holy people. Only God's way to worship would show how sin could be forgiven and only God's way to worship could point them to, to ultimately to Christ by putting the gospel on display, in prefiguring that in, in, as the uh, tabernacle did. The, the tabernacle prefigured the gospel and, and Jesus. And so that's what God gave it to them for. To worship God in any other way may gratify us, but it doesn't glorify God. We should be n- careful not to fashion God into our own image. Even if we do, do this only with our minds, we are not free to dumb God down to make him more acceptable so that he comfortably fits our desires and lifestyles. We are not to imitate the ways the world worships its false gods to make worship feel more, more appealing to us. 
And as more Americans uh, jettison and turn their backs on the true God, more and more people are doing that. Um, it creates a belief vacuum, and in that vacuum, other things fill its place. So you can't create a vacuum without sucking other things into its place. And so what people today are turning more and more to, to like Wiccan and nature religions, and um, many of them, people are reading their horoscopes and believing them. And it's, it's, it's just incredible how people will just believe anything but the truth about God. So they always have to have a substitute. And when you exchange the glory of God for something else, you always lose because Jesus alone reveals the glory of God and is the way to God, and he's only the truth in life. It's a foolish exchange that only can lead to our choosing cheaper replacements for God. It's never wise to do that. In verses 7 and 8, God calls Israel. He says to, he says to Moses, go down, go down to your people. He calls Israel your people. He says, Moses, these are your people, and you brought them out of Egypt. It's like he's wanting to disown them. Although the people had tried to disown Moses, he was the only one who could save them. Yahweh's, the Lord's charges against Israel are that they had broken the first and second commandments. So they, they made, don't make any other gods before me, so they did that. Don't make an image in anything uh, like the, in this planet, so they did that. And they also broke what God said at the front end of the commandments. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. They're saying that this bull brought them out of Egypt. What is surprising is how rapidly Israel fell into sin. God said they've turned aside quickly. God couldn't believe how quickly Israel had broken the covenant. They're, they're thinking, Moses is taking too long to come down the mountain, and God's saying, you've quickly turned your back on me. What they could see and touch at, at their convenience was what they wanted, a God who would let them live as he, they wished and have a good time when they wanted to and, and who would not impose his covenant requirements on them. So to, because they lived in Egypt, a bull made sense. They, they're right out of the context of which they, they lived in. Egypt, Egypt thought a bull was a powerful god, so they, that's what they did. The people were so wedded to their Egyptian way of thinking, their, their Egyptian culture they came out of, that they could manage to justify in their minds its false religion, even to the point of worshiping a bull. Even though that religion had been proved, proven false again and again and again by God's mighty acts, he said, I'm, I'm going to destroy all the so-called gods of Egypt. He overcame them again and again and again and proved that he was the real God, and their, and their gods were no gods whatsoever. Old habits and ways of thinking die hard. In times of stress, people often revert to them even though they are useless or destructive. So a question for us is, do your values, the, the way you think, the way you talk, does it reflect truth about God? Does it reflect right thinking about God? Do we reflect the truth about God in terms of how we speak and how we live? Or do we, do we live according to the way the world dictates or to God's ways? So have your habits and ways of dealing with stress, frustration, fear, or depression changed since you came to Jesus? Or do your ways of dealing with fear and anger and stress look just like the way the world does? So God shapes the way we, we worship, and he, he shapes how we think, how we live, and how we live should constantly demonstrate the truth of God's word and not 
just reflect the same hopelessness and dependence on broken solutions the world has to offer. In verses 9 and 10, the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. So he's talking about them the same way they talked about Moses. This people, they said, this Moses, we don't know, this people. They're stiff-necked. That's not a good thing to be called. If, you ever, if anybody ever calls you stiff-necked, they're not complimenting you. Because stiff-necked means like you're an ox who will not turn to go the way you want them to go. God is the covenant author, so he has the right to... Um, he has the right to bring the consequences upon them for breaking the covenant, which they're doing. It's dangerous to be stiff-necked. Stiff-necked people always think they're right, which is great if you think you're always right, but it's a delusion that only you hold. Nobody else holds that. <laughs> they say, that's just the way I am, and people just have to put up with it. God says here to Moses, let me alone. Why does God say, let me alone? Why would God even say this unless he wanted Moses to, to, to pray, to get involved? God no, did not want to be left alone. He was, he was prompting Moses to get involved, to intercede for, for his people. It's not because he's mad and he wants to go off by himself. Well, I'm just going to go off over here and just leave me alone. It's his way of saying, don't try to stop me from punishing them because... They don't deserve a second chance. Because if you intercede, I, I'm going to have to show mercy, and I don't want to do that. In a way, God is really seeking Moses to, to, to let him destroy the people, but he doesn't really want to do that. He really wants Moses to intercede because he's, he's designed to use Moses' prayer to rescue the, the people. So, in other words, under what circumstances will God destroy the people? Under what circumstances will he wipe them out? If only if Moses doesn't pray, only if Moses doesn't intercede. And besides that, God's also testing Moses. He's saying he promised to make Moses into a great nation. God's offer to make a great nation from Moses was tempting. It was a real test of, of Moses' character. The Israelites deserved to be punished anyway, and who better to make a great nation of than Moses? He's been up to, up to the mountain with God, so yeah, just make... The land of Moses, the Mosesites, the children of Moses. To save Israel, Moses had to turn down the opportunity to make a name for himself. But Moses does pass the test. He opts for, for defending the very people who have already caused him grief through their constant rebelling. This is the mark of a true man of God. He chooses God's greater glory and, and the, people's, the good of his people over his own personal exaltation. Moses was like Jesus in this way, who deserved only worship, but who laid down his life to save God's undeserving people. Jesus suffered shame, betrayal, excruciating physical pain, and the unbelievable, unimaginable weight of taking God's wrath for the world's sins on himself to save us, rather than letting us be consumed by God's wrath. So in verses 11 through 13, we see Moses interceding for God's people. So what Moses doesn't do in this is he doesn't say, he doesn't try to minimize Israel's sin. 
He doesn't offer any excuses for them. He does not argue that God's anger was not fair. On the contrary, he assumes that Israel was guilty before he even goes down to see for himself. He just knows that they're, they're able to do this. And based on that assumption, he knew that God had every right to wipe them out. So Moses makes his case by presenting five reasons for God to show mercy. Reasons based upon God's very character. So the first thing he does is he appeals to God's fatherly affection. He says, God, your people. God had said to Moses, hey, your people. No, they're your people. No, they're your people. So God's saying, Moses is saying to God, no, they really are your people. And second thing he ways he prays for them is Moses appeals to God's past investment. He says, O oh Lord, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand? Moses was reminding God what he had already done in the, in, for the children of Israel, with miracles, signs, and wonders. He had already saved them. He worked mighty deeds of salvation. So why stop now? Why, why would you quit now, God? The third way he prays for them, Moses appeals to God on the basis of his reputation. He asks God to save his people uh, for the sake of his own name. This was the reason God saved them in the first place. He said, so the Egyptians would see his glory. They will know there is no one like me. In the way, what he said to Pharaoh in, in, back in Exodus chapter 9, he said, For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So now how would God's name be glorified if he just wiped the people out? Why should the Egyptians say and it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the, in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? God's credibility was on the line. The Egyptians would, would misinterpret it if he, if he wiped them out and killed them. They would say God, that God hated them and he always meant to destroy them. If God abandoned them now, his reputation would, would suffer greatly. The fourth way he prayed for them, Moses appealed to God on the basis of his merciful compassion. He appealed for mercy. You see this at the end of verse 12, where Moses asked God to turn away from his wrath. There was nothing wrong with God's wrath. It's holy, just, and pure, as it always is. And it was an appropriate response to Israel's great betrayal of his breaking his covenant. The Israelites deserved to be punished for their sins, and, and there was nothing that Moses could do, say, except for them to have mercy, for God to have mercy on them. There was one thing Moses could do, in other words, ask God to show mercy. Mercy is the most sinners can hope for. Since it is God's withholding the punishment we deserve, it is never something that we have a right to demand. God is never obligated to show mercy. He's never obligated to show mercy. And then in verse 13, his, his final appeal is based on God's everlasting covenant. He said, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your offspring, your descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised. So he quotes God and appeals to him on the basis of his, of his eternal, unbreakable promise. So verse 14, what do we see? In verse 14, we see God relenting. Amazingly, he relents. He will not destroy his people. Why does he choose to relent? 
Well, he's part of the reason is Moses prayed. Uh, if Moses had not interceded, God would have destroyed these people, it seems. Moses intercedes in order to secure a stay of execution. It is this disaster, that total destruction of the entire nation except for Moses, that God renounces. He has not uh, forgiven them. He has not renounced the idea of punishment for the guilty, as we'll see next week. He is still going to bring some punishment down, some consequences, but he is not going to wipe them out. The picture of Yahweh or, or the Lord in Exodus is not one of a vengeful God being manipulated by clever Moses. No. Rather, by interacting with Moses, God involves Moses in the process of both his withholding his judgment and, and the punishment that he does give. So he involves Moses in the process. That was always his design, to involve the mediator. God would have been just to destroy them, for the Israelites were corrupt and stiff-necked, covenant breakers. He decides not to destroy them, but, he, but will spare them because of who he is. His actions will flow from his free and sovereign will and as one who is moved to pit by pity and compassion, not just by Moses' arguments. In asking God to relent of the disaster he threatens to bring upon Israel, Moses appeals to God's mercy. As both a God of justice and mercy, God has the right, sovereign freedom and right to do as he pleases. He cannot be criticized either for punishing or forgiving. We'll see this in chapter 34, but I'll give you a sneak preview. Chapter 34, God is saying to Moses, Moses says, you've got to go with us. And he says, I want to see your glory, God. And Moses says, God says to Moses, you can't see my glory, but I'll reveal my name to you. And he says, this is my name. My name is this. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and of the children and the children's children on to the third and fourth generation. So God, he is known for being merciful, compassionate, and forgiving, but he will bring consequences down for those who don't repent of sin. God knew Moses would, would respond to his challenge. He took the, the intercession challenge, and he knew, God, he knew Moses would do that. Moses does intercede, appealing to God's character. So God relents in keeping with who he is, and not because he was caught off guard or surprised or shamed into changing his mind. Moses didn't persuade God to do what he didn't really want to do. That's not what intercession is. We're not, we don't try to persuade God to do what, what he doesn't really want to do. <clears throat> God's change of mind is not presented here as God's failing. He doesn't say, oh, I was wrong, I'm sorry. I, I was having a bad day. Things got out of control. I, I changed my mind. That's not what God's doing here. But rather, his relenting reflects his sovereign freedom to exercise compassion that is part of his unchanging nature. He's able to exercise compassion that's part of his unchanging nature. So it's not, it's not God changing his mind in some random way like people do, but it's God saying, hey, they deserve this, but I'm going to, because this is who I am. I'm going to respond to your, to your prayer, Moses. Likewise, God didn't change his mind about us when Jesus came down to become our mediator, to die for us, be raised, and intercede for us. It was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. So Jesus, our mediator, 
interceding for us is based on his eternal plan with the Father to save us through his becoming the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus interceding for us is not him trying to persuade the Father to do what he doesn't want to do, be merciful to us. God appoints this mediator, his mediator. This is the, this is the point of the whole thing right here, so you need to get this. If, you, if you're asleep, wake up. Here's the, here's the main point. God appoints his mediators to intercede according to his righteous and merciful nature and his redemptive plans and purposes. God appoints his mediators to intercede according to God's righteous and merciful nature and his redemptive purposes and plans. He sought this in Ezekiel's day. So Ezekiel, they, they were sitting like crazy. He says, I'm going to destroy the land. But he, in Ezekiel 22, 30, he says this, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. So it's like, I, I looked for somebody to, to, to intercede for, for Israel, and, and nobody did. Nobody stepped forward. So he, they, they got booted out of the land because there's no, no intercessor. Moses, in this way, prefigures Christ as mediator and intercessor. Knowing that we have such a mediator, such an intercessor, should not make us feel like, hey, I can just sin and God will forgive me. In fact, the way God says it through John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, he says it this way. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a mediator, with God, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the, the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word that's hard to say. It's, God, it's satisfying God's wrath and turning the wrath away. So the propitiation is satisfying God's wrath. He paid the price because Jesus is righteous and he bore our sins. He's able to turn away God's wrath from us. He is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We see more of Jesus' role described this way in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And Romans 8.34 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? And he continues to do that. We see this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So how do you know if you're in Christ, he will keep you to the end? You know, he, you know he's going to keep you to the end because he continues to intercede for you. He never quits. No matter what you do, he continues to intercede. Jesus intercedes for those who are the fathers to give him. As followers of Jesus Christ, now we are called. We have the assignment to intercede for others as well. To pray for other sinners. Other sinners, because we're, we're sinners interceding in Jesus for other sinners. We intercede for people who don't know Jesus yet, and people who do know Jesus but have sinned. Have you given up on praying for someone because they're stiff-necked? You know people who you just say, hey, I can't pray for them anymore because they're just too hard. Uh, they can't be, you, you can't be praying for anybody who's any worse off than Israel was. 
So when we pray, we pray like Moses. We appeal to God's fatherly affection, to his love for those who have not yet come into his family and for those who have come into his family. We appeal to God on the basis of his redemptive investment. When we see someone caught in sin, we ask God not to waste the work he's already done in their lives, but to rescue them. We appeal to God on the basis of the glory of his name in saving his people. We ask God to save people so that others will see his glory as he transforms their lives. We appeal to his merciful compassion that he doesn't give sinners what they deserve. Thank God he doesn't give us what we deserve. Because of his nature and character as as a God of mercy. And we appeal to God on the basis of his covenant, his eternal promise to save sinners in Christ. This is our calling as Christians to pray for sinners in the way that Moses prayed for Israel and the way that Jesus prays for us. We don't intercede to persuade God to do what he doesn't want to do. We're not asking God to do what he doesn't want to do. We're asking God to do what he's always purposed to do and according to his character. We, we pray according to God's unchanging character and to what he's always promised to do. So we look at texts like Ephesians 1, 3-7, and we see what does God purpose to do. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So because God has promised these things and he's purposed to do these things, we can pray these things for people. We can pray, God, you continue to work in their lives. Make them holy and blameless. You said you're going to do that, so do that in their lives. You said you did it for the praise of your glory, so, so continue to make people see the glory of your name as you, as you work in their lives. We thank you, Father, that you have purposed through the blood of Christ to save people. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So continue to do that. Continue to, to through the blood of Christ, to, to cleanse them from sin, to forgive them. When we come, we're going to take now, we're going to have some, a time of worship and song. We're going to take this meal together. What this bread represents is the body of Christ. And this cup represents the blood of Christ. So as you take these things, you're remembering what God has already done for you in Jesus. He continues to invite you to receive his forgiveness. In one sense, when you come to Jesus, you're saved once for all. It says in Hebrews that he, he saved us. Uh, one sacrifice suffice for all time. But we continue to draw upon that grace over and over and over again because, because he continues to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you have known Jesus that way, if you have trusted in him by his death and resurrection to save you, this is a meal for you. If you haven't yet done that, we'd be happy to talk to you, but this meal represents that kind of faith. So if you don't have that kind of faith understanding yet, then we'll, um, there are people here to pray with you, and, and we'd be happy to help you understand what does it mean to receive Jesus into your life. So we'll, we'll pray now, and we'll be ready to receive this, the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for your fatherly love toward us, that even though we continue to turn our backs on your grace and your mercy and on your good and holy word, you as Father, we are your people. 
because you have purpose to save us as your people. And you gave us a, a Savior whose redeeming work in his perfect life and his death and in his resurrection and in his ongoing intercession for us, that can't ever be undone. That, that's forever. He lives forever to make intercession for us. So with confidence, we come before your throne of grace to ask, Father, for your working in our, in our congregation to continue to draw people to yourself, to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we trust you to keep doing that work. We thank you, Father, that it's been your purpose to glorify your name in how you save us. So because you're, there's none greater than your, your name, your name is great, you're going to continue to save us because you've promised according to your unshakable, infallible word and your promise that's attached to your name that you would save the people for yourself. So thank you. We can trust in that. We never have to worry that you're going to disown us. Father, as we take these elements together, may we continue to remember the greatness of Jesus in his humility. He's, he laid down his life for us when he deserved only to be worshipped, and he didn't leave us where we were, but in his great redeeming work, he has rescued us from the judgment we deserved, and he's given us the mercy that we didn't deserve. And you always planned that with him from the foundation of the world, so this wasn't a surprise to you. It's Jesus and you planning to save the people. Thank you, Father, for giving us so great a salvation in Jesus. And help us to be faithful people who pray in these same ways for people in our lives who we recognize are fellow sinners like us. I pray, Father, we would just be constantly praying for one another to live free from sin and alive, living for Jesus, honoring him. Thank you, Father, we can trust these things to you and that you will do them. In Jesus' name.